Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're so excited to welcome Carolyn Bertozzi, professor at Stanford, bioorthogonal chemistry pioneer, and newly minted Nobel laureate to the show today. A huge congratulations, Carolyn, and thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. Carolyn, we'd love if you can kick things off for us. Can you rewind the clock and uh, give us an overview on your background and career to start the show for us? Absolutely. So I am a New Englander. I was born in 1966 in Boston, Massachusetts, and I grew up in a town called Lexington, which is um, famous for having been one of the sort of epicenters of the revolutionary battle that led to, you know, the independence of the U.S. back in 1776. You know, I grew up around a lot of American history, and I'm the daughter, one of three, of a retired physics professor. That's my dad. William Bertozzi, and he's 91 years old, and now he lives in Los Angeles. And he raised me and my two sisters, along with my mother, with, you know, a lot of encouragement to study math and science. And so, you know, fast forward, I became a chemist. My older sister became an applied mathematician, and my younger sister became an occupational therapist. And my dad is probably the most excited person on the planet Earth over the last week. Thanks, Carolyn. And maybe help us connect the dots here. What's been your North Star, your, your common thread, maybe tying your work together? Well, for me, the, the scientific thread that drives me is basically the exciting opportunities for scientific discovery at the interface of chemistry and biology. And that interest um, really started when I was in college. So I went to Harvard University and I started out at Harvard as a biology major and I would have identified myself as a pre-med. So I thought, you know, I would take all of the required science classes um, so that I could apply to medical school someday if I wanted to be a doctor, you know, which lots of kids think they wanna be. But then along the way, I took the course in organic chemistry like during my sophomore year of college. And it absolutely gripped me and I just fell in love with the subject. So at that point, I took myself off the pre-med train and decided that really my destiny was to be an organic chemist. And what was so exciting to me about that field was how it described so much of biology at the molecular level. Um, So that interest in both chemistry and biology came with me to graduate school. And that's when I finally started to engage in research that combined those two things. And ever since then, that's really been my my compass. Thanks, Carolyn. We're excited to dive in that further. Our first topic here, bioorthogonal chemistry and the study of living systems. As mentioned, you were just awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry for your development of bioorthogonal reactions. A huge congratulations once again. What an amazing honor. We'd love to dive in here a little bit further on bioorthogonal chemistry, a term you coined in 2003, which means not interacting with biology, allows scientists to explore cells and track biological processes 
without disrupting the normal chemistry of the cell, can you tell us more about the history of glycan biology and the challenges that led to your development of bioorthogonal chemistry? Oh, absolutely. You know, the origin story actually started with my interest in the biology of complex carbohydrate molecules. And we call them glycans now. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, I actually focused on the chemical synthesis of glycans and various analogs of them. So I had learned a lot about sugar chemistry. And then I did a postdoctoral fellowship in an immunology lab at UC San Francisco, which is a medical center. And it was in that laboratory that I started to learn more about how the sugars that coat the surfaces of cells, and by the way, all of our cells are coated with these sugars, how those sugars allow cells to communicate with each other and how the structures of those sugars can undergo changes during the course of a disease. And in particular, around that time, it became clear that one of the hallmarks of cancers is a change in the structures of cell surface sugars. And people were seeing this in every cancer they looked at, but in order to see those changes, they had to actually remove the tumor tissue from a patient like you know, by surgery and then grind up the tissues and destroy them. And that was the only way to actually characterize the sugar molecules. And I found this very frustrating because anytime you see a big change that takes place in cancer, you wonder whether you could capitalize on that change to be able to detect the cancer or diagnose the cancer in a patient. And ideally you'd like to be able to do that without cutting the patient open, right? You'd rather be able to see the cancer through some kind of imaging scan, like a CAT scan or an MRI scan, or even an X-ray. And, and that's hard to do with cancer. And it was impossible to see the sugars on cells period, without destroying the cells. There just wasn't a technology for that. So it was basically in the course of experiencing that frustration that I came up with an idea for how to basically mark the sugars on the surface of cells with imaging probes that would allow you to see those sugars without destroying the cells. And ideally, this technology in my head <laughs> would be useful to see the sugars in actual living animals or human patients without cutting them open either. And I started thinking about how to do that. And that's where the idea of bioorthogonal chemistry came from. And even though it took until 2003 for me and my students to put a name to the chemistry, we sort of branded it with that term bioorthogonal chemistry, but we were working on these chemistries much earlier, uh, about, about five or six years earlier, we started publishing on bioorthogonal chemistry without actually using that terminology for it. But it came from, you know, what I felt was an unmet need to be able to image sugars on live cells in live animals. That's why we invented the chemistry initially. Later on, of course, both people in my lab and people in many other labs realized that that chemistry could be useful for a lot of other applications having nothing to do with sugars. And it kind of really took off from there. But sugars is where it started. To build on that, through the fluorescence tagging of biothogonal reactions, chemists are now able to study chemical reactions with living organisms, easily one of the most complex chemical environments imaginable. Given the breadth of applications bioorthogonal chemistry enables, how do you and your lab select which projects to prioritize? Well, that's a great question. And you're right. Uh, bioorthogonal chemistry is so powerful. It allows you to do all kinds of interesting biological experiments and putting probe molecules, like putting fluorescent 
dyes, I like to call them molecular light bulbs, right? Putting a light bulb onto molecules of interest allows you to follow them around in their native environment. And you learn a lot about biology when you can study molecules in their natural habitat. And bioorthogonal chemistry is a very powerful way to do that. It's also useful for other things like just building very complicated molecules um, from complicated building blocks is a lot easier with bioorthogonal chemistry than with any of the old fashioned chemistries. Um, people are actually using bioorthogonal chemistry right now for drug delivery applications. And there's a company that is doing the chemistry in the body of human cancer patients right now in a phase one clinical trial. They're using the chemistry to target chemotherapies to cancer tissue environments while sparing the rest of the body from the harmful effects of the chemotherapy. So, th so there's tons of applications. And given all the interesting opportunities, you know, how do you prioritize projects in your lab? Well, for me, there are sort of two you know, processes by which I might evaluate a project and prioritize it. The first is, you know, I have this longstanding interest in glycobiology. And so I'm always excited when I can convince a new student or a new postdoc in my lab to work on a project that helps us understand glycobiology. But sometimes students and postdocs have their own interests um, which don't involve glycoscience and that's fine too. And so um, that's the second important criterion, which is the student or the postdoc has to be really interested in the project. And if they're interested in it, and if I can afford to support it financially in my lab, because you know I have to raise money, I have to write for grant applications, but if I can get the money to work on the project, then that's, and, and the student or postdoc is really excited about it, then that's it, I'm game. You know, I'm there to be supportive to them. Very cool. Love to hear that support of your postdocs and uh, wish more PIs followed that logic as well. Great to hear. To build on that further, so your pioneering work in bioorthogonal chemistry just last week came to fruition with a recognition as a Nobel laureate on behalf of the BIOS team and our audience. Uh, a huge congratulations once again. Uh, we'd love to hear a bit more about what this honor means to you and in, in your lab. Well, um, it means a lot and exactly what it means I'm still finding out uh, because it's only been a week since the big notification. But I think for my students and postdocs, it's really exciting because it casts a spotlight on this area of chemistry that they are all very passionate about. And it's always exciting when other people acknowledge your work and you know, kind of join you in celebrating its impact. Also, I think uh, my students and postdocs who were with me back at UC Berkeley, which is where I started my career, and all of the early work in the development of bioorthogonal chemistry was done at Berkeley. I think that those alumni from my lab are really excited because this is a recognition of their work, right? As much, if not more than it is of myself as the you know, director of the laboratory. Um, those students remember what it was like to try to solve a million problems so that we had a reaction you could actually perform in the incredibly messy environment, as you put it, of a living organism. And you know, there, were, there was a lot of sweat and tears and late nights in the lab and frustration and triumph. And you know, there was, it was quite dramatic those early days of my lab, trying to do something that was you know, quite unusual and a bit maverick at the time. Um, and so I think the students who took a risk on me as a brand new, young, you know, untested professor with crazy ideas about in vivo chemistry. You know, some of those folks took a big risk and it paid off 
and a Nobel Prize, you know, what, what could be a better validation of the risk they took and how it paid off? So it's, it's really exciting. And, and then I think, you know, beyond me and beyond this specific subject of bioorthogonal chemistry, I think the Nobel Prize is really telling a story about the importance of chemical tools in the biological sciences, because all of the chemistries that are being recognized, not just the ones from my lab, but also the chemistry from Barry Sharpless's lab and Morton Meldahl's lab. And those two developed this copper catalyzed so-called click chemistry reaction, which has also turned out to be a mainstay now of chemical biology research. And so I think you know, the bigger picture is that the Nobel Foundation is sending the message that chemistry, fundamental chemistry is really essential for progress in biology. Thanks, Carolyn. And to build on that, you talk about the Nobel Foundation and the message they're sending with progress here. We'd love to build on that. Where do you hope to take the field next in these endeavors? Well, you know, um, already there's a, a kind of a shift underfoot where a lot of the basic science and kind of foundational technology development that was the focus of the field for the last you know, 25 years or so, um, that is now shifting more towards applications and in particular applications in the clinic. So like I mentioned, um, there's a company now that has a new way to deliver drugs to cancer tissue that involves in vivo, like in the person, bioorthogonal uh, bio chemistry. And that's the first example of something that I think is going to really blow up which is you know, using the concept of bioorthogonal chemistry to develop new kinds of medicines that have totally different modes of action, that have different ways of distributing themselves around the human body. Um, so, so I see a potential to innovate in medicine and, and it's the very early days of thinking about that. But the bioorthogonal chemistries have been developed, they've been optimized, they, we understand them. And now I think we can deploy them for the improvement of human health. So I'd like to think of that as the next kind of chapter in my career. If you've talked about translating the work from your lab, uh, we'd love to dive deeper into that and with our second topic, academic entrepreneurship. I'll pass it off to Chris to dive deeper here. Thank you, Chaz and Carolyn again. And in addition, as Chaz mentions, and as you've kindly described, to your pioneering work in chemical biology, you've long been an academic entrepreneur co-founding your first company, uh, Theos Pharmaceuticals, in the early 2000s, and then a startup of your own, Redwood Bioscience, in 2008. As such a prolific entrepreneur, we'd love to know, how do you think about translating technologies from academia to bring about this patient change that we were just discussing? Well, uh, this is something I've become ever more involved in as my career has matured. Um, and you know, for me, it's been a learning process, um, but I've become better and better at, you know, identifying problems that we can solve with new technologies in my academic lab and, and then how to translate the technology into a new company or license to an existing company and how to shepherd the technology all the way to the, you know, clinic, right? We call it from bench to bedside. Mm. Um, I've gotten better at that over the years. So, you know, I had those two companies from Berkeley, which you mentioned. Uh, the first one was actually co-founded with my postdoc advisor, and it was based on some science from his lab. But um, Redwood Bioscience was the first company that I spun out of my own lab with technology that, that invented by my students and me at, at Berkeley. And 
then when I moved to Stanford in 2015, my entrepreneurship really took off. And since I moved to Stanford, I formed another, I think, eight companies just in seven years here at Stanford. Um, so that's a lot. <laughs> and um, Stanford is, is particularly well-suited for this kind of translational work I've discovered. Um, first of all, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley now and I'm surrounded by people in the investment community. And so the connections have become much stronger just simply because of geography. Also Stanford kind of has a long history of being a, a place that's very entrepreneurial and easy to start companies out of. And my students and postdocs at Stanford, they have an appetite for this kind of thing. So nowadays it's not uncommon for a PhD student when they join my lab to actually craft a thesis project intentionally so that there might be an opportunity to spin out their work into a new company, which they would then co-found. And that's happened with a number of my Stanford students. And, and you know, over the years, I've gotten better at figuring out you know, which technologies have value and which technologies are uniquely suited to fulfill unmet needs and how you prioritize programs when you start a company and how you recruit the founding team, how you finance those companies and, and how you shepherd you know, your molecules with all the decision-making that goes into it so that you can actually have clinical candidates in a timely manner. So, you know, I've, two of my companies have put molecules into the clinic so far. Um, some of my companies are diagnostic testing companies, and um, two of them also already have products now that they market. Um, so they've transitioned into being not just research organizations, but commercial organizations. Um, and so, you know, I, I learn as I go, just like everyone who works with me on these companies learns as we go. I think we've, we've benefited from the fact that we work in the area of glycoscience, and glycoscience has historically been kind of underappreciated and I wouldn't say ignored entirely, that, that wouldn't be fair, but, but it, it's, you know, I, I would say not well understood and appreciated by mainstream biopharma. And a consequence of that is that there's so much great science and so many discoveries and innovations and technologies that have come from glycoscience in the last few decades, but have not yet been capitalized upon and monetized. So we have found that it's a, a wide open playing field. And every time we have a new discovery or a new technology in glycoscience, we start a company and we're the first in class. And then, you know, followers arrive on the scene later, but, but it's kind of fun to be out there in such a wide open field, able to start companies in areas where, you know, you have a leading edge in the science. Oh, well, absolutely. And especially given the nature of your pioneering work, I think we're all thrilled to hear you highlight the people and the opportunity for translation. And I appreciate that you brought up pharma there at the end as well, because in addition to your work with startups, you've also served on the research advisory boards of pharmaceutical companies such as GSK and Eli Lilly. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, you shared a great background on your academic experience with entrepreneurship and innovation. We'd love to hear your experience fostering innovation more on the pharma side and maybe think about how those experiences uh, are similar and different. Well, yes, um, I, I do sit on the scientific advisory boards for an, a dozen or so uh, biopharmaceutical companies, some larger ones and some smaller startups, you know, Bay Area startups. Mm -hmm. um, and Lily, at Lily, I was actually on the board of directors oh. um, for about four and a half years. And that was a great experience. That was my first board seat. Um, and I learned a ton and hopefully brought some interesting perspectives to the table. 
um, I ended up having to uh, step down from that board because it was uh, I had the high class problem that Lily um, decided to do a business deal with one of my own startup companies, which I had co-founded. And the deal was a significant enough you know, financial deal that it put me kind of in, into, into conflict as a member of the board of directors. So I had to step down uh, to basically you know, avoid a conflict of interest situation. But you know, every one of these boards I've sat on has been a great privilege to me. And you know, I've tried to bring my perspective as a chemical biologist to the table and um, with my experience from my own startup companies. Um, but at the same time, you know, I learn a, I learn a ton from working with these companies, not just the science, but I get to meet all these really interesting, smart, motivated people, um, which is part of the whole Bay Area network, you know, and you know how it is with startup companies. You tend to see a lot of the same people in various companies over time. Uh, so it's it's been a great opportunity for me to, to network and meet new collaborators and friends and coworkers. And drawing on those connections, on your experiences, on your many roles as an academic entrepreneur, as a founder, and as an advisor to so many companies. Do you have any advice for early stage startups or for academics who harbor entrepreneurial ambitions? Well, I've certainly learned uh, mostly by making mistakes along the way, you know, <laughs> and getting getting better at it as I go. But I think, you know, first and foremost, the science has to be absolutely top notch. You know, the highest level of scholarship. One should be very self-critical about the science and and not overhype it. And, and not believe in things without the data to back it up, right? So I think one has to impose very high standards on the quality of science before even thinking about whether that science could spawn a company. Mm-hmm. And if you're confident that the science is at its highest level and it's robust and reproducible, then you also wanna make sure that you actually have a technology or have a product idea that fulfills an unmet need. and you know, I think it's worth talking to people about that, that unmet need. You know, one thing I, one experience I had is back when I was at UC Berkeley, which is a world-class institution for science and engineering, but it does not have a medical center. So there's no clinical sciences at Berkeley. And so without having people around like doctors who treat patients and who've seen, you know, hundreds of different variations of the disease and so on, um, without being able to talk to them, I think it's hard to know what unmet medical needs really look like. And you know, you can theorize about unmet needs as a basic scientist, but until you talk to people who are in the trenches, you know, on the ground and see and are frustrated with not being able to help patients in certain ways, uh, I think it's really hard to really understand the unmet needs. So being at Stanford has been transformative for me because now I do have much more access to clinicians and patients. And this has been a revelation for me in terms of understanding where there might be opportunities to solve medical problems where, where my lab or my brain is uniquely well-suited to solve that problem. And that's the other, I think, key element of a successful company. You need, you need great science, robust science. You need very clear unmet needs you know, that where there really is a customer at the end of the pipeline. And then, you know, you, you really need to understand whether your company is the right company that has the unique skill set or the unique technology to meet those needs. And when all of those things line up, that's when the magic happens. So, you know, my advice to academic co-founders or uh, aspiring academic entrepreneurs is to think about whether they can line up those stars 
And then I think it'll be a lot easier for them to convince investors to get on board with them and, and so on and so forth. And as we think about those stars coming together and narrow the focus maybe back to your own companies, among your more recent startups, you recently co-founded Lycia Therapeutics to advance the discovery of lysosome targeting chimeras that may be able to degrade cardiovascular disease and cancer targets. Would love to hear more about Lycia and the problem your company is solving. Yes, that's a that's a great question. And Lycia is a really exciting company that is pursuing, as you mentioned, lysosome targeting chimeras. We, we abbreviate those types of medicines as LITAX. And we were inspired to develop LITAX after the exciting progression of a different but related modality called the PROTAC, starting from academia and then ultimately towards having clinical candidates and patients. So a PROTAC is a proteolysis targeting chimera. It's a concept that came from the labs of Craig Cruz at Yale and Ray Deshays, who was at Caltech as an academic before he became the head of research at Amgen. And PROTACs are bifunctional molecules where one part of the molecule binds to a, a pathogenic protein target of interest. And the other part of the molecule binds to an enzyme called an E3 ligase. And by forming a ternary complex between the target and the E3 ligase, a process ensues wherein the ligase by ubiquitinates the target, puts ubiquitin chains on the target, and that marks the target for degradation by the proteasome. So a protac is a molecule that does targeted protein degradation, and that's this mechanism of action. It just literally initiates degradation of your target, just gets rid, your cell gets rid of it. And I've been enamored of that technology for a long time because I know its originators, they're academics of a generation, same as mine. I teach about that in my class, you know, at Stanford and previously at Berkeley, because it's such a cool story of chemical biology all the way to drug discovery. But at the same time, you know, I was kind of frustrated because most of the molecules I study are extracellular. So they're outside cells, either secreted molecules or cell surface molecules. And the protacs are really only useful for targets that are intracellular, so proteins inside the cell. And that's because that's where the proteasome is located, right? So proteins that get degraded by the proteasome have to be in the same compartment, which is in the cytosol. But what if you want to target extracellular proteins for degradation? And there's plenty of proteins out there people would love to get rid of because they're causing diseases but there was no protac equivalent, the extracellular space. So we thought about this and, and it occurred to us that maybe you could hijack the lysosome or what's called the endosome lysosome pathway to target an extracellular protein for degradation. And we envisioned a bifunctional molecule that on the one hand would bind to the extracellular target, but then on the other hand, it would bind a lysosomal trafficking shuttle. And there's about a dozen or so of these known shuttles. They're receptors on the surface of cells that, that grab cargo and drag that cargo to the lysosome where it gets degraded. Lysosome is like a big garbage disposal for extracellular molecules. So the reason that this was top of mind is because one of the most well-known lysosomal trafficking shuttles is a protein that binds a sugar. And it binds a particular sugar structure called mannose 6-phosphate. 
And like when you study glycobiology, that's like one of the first things you learn about, you know, this receptor that binds a sugar and takes the glycoproteins with that sugar and escorts them to the lysosome. So that was kind of a known system. So the first molecules we made that functioned as these LITACs were monoclonal antibodies that bind a target of interest, chemically modified with mannose-6-phosphate derivatives, which we chemically synthesized. So the antibody would bind the target, the mannose-6-phosphate would bind this lysosomal trafficking receptor, and the whole complex would get dragged into the cell, into the lysosome, where the target would get degraded. And we had worked this out in my lab, and it was the work of a former postdoc whose name is Steve Bannock. That's an important name for you to remember because he's now an assistant professor in my department in chemistry. Um, we hired him to be a faculty member because he's just so spectacular. But during his postdoc with me, he synthesized the first, you know, LIHTC molecules and showed that they work and you can degrade things with them. And we published that paper and a whole bunch of venture capital groups saw the publication um, as well as a bunch of pharma company people. And I started getting phone call after phone call after phone call because everybody realized this might be the next variation on the ProTax theme. And the ProTax were already a very exciting area in drug discovery. And so that's what led to the formation of Lycia. You know, we ended up partnering with Versant Ventures, formed Lycia and built out the team. And now uh, Lycia is making Litax as drug candidates. And I think we're all incredibly excited to see where these candidates move forward and how the field continues to grow. And not only that, to know what's coming next. But taking things in a slightly different direction, we'd love to talk more about cultivating biotech's future talent. And okay. this is an area we know that throughout your career, you've been a huge proponent of supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sciences. And it yeah. seems like you've built not only your lab, but also your companies to reflect that. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on how all of us, especially academics, of course, can better incorporate DE&I into our team and company building. Well, this is a really important element of any successful organization, first and foremost. Um, you know, organizations with diversity among their rank and file are the organizations that are the most creative, the most productive, and probably the most fun to work at. And, you know, the social sciences have taught us this, you know, through data-driven analyses. Um, but I already knew this, you know, just, uh, I think, just, you know, an anecdotally from my experiences with my own laboratory. Um, every time we had a game-changing shift in our research program, it was because diverse people came to the lab with different interests and different backgrounds and different mindsets and had the, you know, the fearlessness to, to take us in new directions. And I was always highly supportive of that. So I think, you know, the effort that we put into ensuring that our workforce reflects the diversity of society, um, that not only takes us one step closer to having a more just society, but it, I think, takes us closer to having a better, more productive society. So I very, I very strongly believe in this, and I've seen it with my own eyes. I think you'll find that hopefully all of us here today, but also in the audience, are, are in strong proponents as well. And we love finding ways and hearing thoughts from people such as yourself who really not only practiced, uh, not only preached, but also practiced how to bring this forward. And well, I'm fortunate. To... I'm fortunate because I, 
first and foremost, I am an academic. Mm -hmm. So that means that my primary mission is one of education uh, and training. And because of my situation at Stanford, I've been able to create programs that allow us to recruit uh, more diverse students into our scientific training programs. So for example, um, we have a post-baccalaureate program that we support. And when I say we, I mean, um, it's supported by my institute, which is called Serafan Chem H at Stanford, together with another initiative, which we call the Innovative Medicines Accelerator or the IMA. And we've been able to have, you know, we've been generously supported by the university and by philanthropy so that we could recruit students into this post-baccalaureate program and they're students from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, and we give them a laboratory experience, which will then position them to be competitive for graduate school applications at the very top PhD programs. And in, the, in, you know, in our dream world, uh, we get at least some of them uh, to join us in our Stanford PhD programs including one that I created when I first arrived at Stanford, which is the Serafan ChemH Chemistry Biology Interface or CBI graduate program. And this is a program that we also um, put effort into recruiting for where we try to recruit students again from the most diverse backgrounds we can achieve. And if you look at the you know, 60 something or so students that are currently enrolled in the program. And you can, you can find the program online. We have a website. You can look at the students that are enrolled. You'll see that they are far more diverse than a typical science PhD program, even at Stanford, right? So we have gender balance, which is not always easy to achieve in the physical sciences. We have people of color, people who self-identify as being from minoritized backgrounds, and they're working in research labs across many different departments, many different schools. Um, they share the common interest in molecular science you know, for the betterment of human health, but some of them are engineers, some of them are chemists, some of them are biologists, some of them are physician scientists. We have MD, PhD students in the program. And I would like to think that our post-baccalaureate program and our CDI graduate program are serving as templates to other organizations as to how you build a diverse student cohort. And you know, as the years go on and we graduate more and more students from these programs, I, I hope that we can actually make a dent on the diversity of the biomedical workforce broadly defined. That's our goal. And it's an audacious goal, but you know, so far we're able to walk the walk. And it's one that I think we all uh, would be excited to support you in. And as you say, if it can serve as a template to others out there, it's an opportunity that I think many places will hopefully jump at to not only bring those students on, but by the same token, hopefully build programs similar to them. Going to pass it back to Chaz now to ask a few quick closing questions right before we wrap things up. Thanks, Chris. Carolyn, as we look to wrap a bow around this episode, a few final questions here. One comes from fellow Nobel laureate, actually, uh, Dennis Gabor. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Uh, <laughs> can you share with us what does inventing the future uh, mean to you? Wow, that's a great quote. I like that. Inventing the future. I mean, you know, I think when I hear that phrase, I like to think of, you know, each of us having our dreams of what the most perfect world and our most perfect life might look like. And, and the truth is that, you know, sometimes people feel that they are 
just subject to the trials and tribulations of life and, and the whims of the planet they live on and so on. And it's easy to forget that we actually do have control over some things. <laughs> and I guess inventing the future is all about, you know, figuring out what, what do you want the world to look like and what would it take to get there? And for someone like me, who's in the biomedical sciences, you know, there might be some immediate goals like, you know, I don't want certain types of cancer to be a death sentence. Is there something we can do about that? Right. Better diagnostics, better therapeutics, better lifestyles. Um, do we want the future to be one in which every young girl, you know, can have a dream and work towards it without having it stripped away from her by the societal structures that she happened to be born into? And I'm so lucky that I was born when I was and where I was and to the parents who that I was dealt because that ecosystem made it possible for me to be a scientist, a professor, and now a Nobel laureate, despite the fact that there were many parts of me that were marginalized along the way. But so many other girls are not born into such a privileged setting. You know, most girls are not born into such a privileged setting. And there are geographies around the world where even today, if I was born now and grew up as I did in some other geography, I would have been branded an outcast, maybe even a criminal. I certainly would not have had the opportunities I had in the time and space that I was born. So I'm, I'm very aware of my privilege. And if, you know, if I was going to try to in, invent the future, <laughs> it would be one in which no matter where a person was born and to whom they were born and to what, in what country and what location and to which parents, that there would be a way for them to live a life of dignity and peace and happiness. Could not agree more and, and wholeheartedly echo the sentiment there. Thanks for sharing that with us. And as we've dove deeply into a few of the projects you've worked on and your pioneering work today, we'd love to look further ahead. And as you've talked about what's coming next in the field, help share with our audience, what would you characterize as the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? Life sciences over the next 30 years? It's wow. a ball, but help, help us if you can. <laughs> well, I'm, well, there's two things that have really captured my attention. Of course, glycoscience. I know I have to, I have to include my own pet passion here. It's an area of biology that, you know, again, historically has been a little bit of a niche in part because all the wonderful technologies around the molecular biology revolution and genetics and genomics wonderful technologies did not directly impact the field of glycoscience until quite recently. So I think glycoscience is about to undergo a huge growth spurt as you know, a, a subdiscipline within the life sciences. And this is going to lead to all kinds of benefits for human health. Because if you overlook something as important as glycosylation, as so pervasive as it is, if you overlook that whole area of biology, you're missing opportunities for medicines and for diagnostic tools and so on. So I think the next you know, 20 years to me is the era of glycoscience. At least that's what I would like to see. That's number one. Number two is um, there's been an enormous growth even just in the last five years of new types of therapeutic modalities that even 10 years ago, people thought were total science fiction, would never work. And I'm talking about things like gene therapy, cell therapy, right? Medicines that are actually made of live living cells. These are living medicines. 
viruses turned into therapeutics, right? And there's some gene therapies that are actually viruses. We intentionally infect people with viruses to cure genetic diseases. It's amazing. That was science fiction just like 10 years ago. Now we have genome editing. And there are medicines now in which people's cells have their genomes edited and the cells get put back into the person. It's incredible. mRNA vaccines. Nobody thought that would work just 10 years ago. And here we are with billions of patients taking mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. And the fact that these totally new types of molecules and living medicines have only hit the scenes within the last less than a decade suggests to me that if you fast forward 20 years, if we keep up the pace, we're going to have medicines of, of a nature we can't even envision even today. And this is very exciting to me because you know, in, in medicine, we've been bashing our heads against a number of walls without much success for some time now. And case in point, our efforts to find medicines for Alzheimer's disease. Right, that, that's an area where you know, many of us you know, have unfortunately Alzheimer's or something like it lurking in our futures. We have no idea how to treat our, ourselves for this pervasive neurodegenerative disease. Um, we've tried a lot of more conventional types of medicines, but so far for the most part, they have failed. There's some hope for some successes on the horizon, but I don't think anyone expects a cure anytime soon. And so, Given that we're inventing medicines of, of a structure and with weird mechanisms that one couldn't have anticipated not long ago, I think it's entirely likely that in the next 20 years, we'll have entirely new brands of medicines that behave in ways that we haven't yet thought of, but we will. And maybe we can finally take on these recalcitrant diseases like Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I would hope I could look forward to that so that, you know, right now I'm 56. I had my birthday just on uh, Monday. Fast forward 30 years, if I'm still here at the age of 86, I would hope we have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> That's all I can say. Well, a happy late birthday, Carolyn. And uh, thanks for sharing with us as we look to the era of glycoscience and these emerging modalities coming to fruition. Let's flash forward, building on the challenge you described and, and realizing this vision. Can you paint a picture for us, biotech in 2050? What will it look like? Where will it be? Well... In 2050, that's you know 25 plus years from now. The reality is, if I turn the clock back 25 years, would I have predicted that today we'd have approved drugs that are siRNA drugs and antisense oligonucleotides and gene therapies and cell therapies and mRNAs? I don't think I necessarily would have. <laughs> so, so what what does that say about my predictive powers for the next 25 years? I think you should take my predictions with a grain of salt. I do think, however that the way that we right now develop technologies in academia and the way that we try to spin them out into startup companies to make products and so on, it's very inefficient and it leaves a lot of innovation on the table that never gets realized. And so I would like to think that we will have figured out how to disrupt the inefficient process by which academic discoveries get translated into medicines. And I'm not sure how we'll do that, but it probably will involve both a disruption to the way that we do research and the way that we support research within the academic walls, as well as the way that we, you know, throw the football, you know, from the from the academia quarterback off to the receiver in industry and how that person runs after the catch. Um, and so I think we need to innovate in 
academic industrial alliances. I think we need new funding models so that you know a person who has an idea from academia and maybe some proof of concept research from their laboratory can find a way to finance the next stage of scaling and animal testing and maybe even early stage clinical testing so that they can bring that more value to the program before they shop it around for startup companies or for licensing. There's a huge canyon there where a lot of promising academic research just never makes it across the canyon to the other side. So if we can figure out you know, how to get more science out of academia and into industry in a smooth, seamless way without leaving a lot of value on the table, I think that will go a long way towards incentivizing academics to take risks invent new modalities and be able to get the resources and the time and the support to work out all the problems that inevitably have to get worked out every time you have a new modality and make that technology valuable and translatable. So we haven't really figured that out yet, but you know, 25 years from now, maybe we have. An exciting vision, Carolyn, and hopefully a, a future that awaits us. One question we, we love to ask you on more maybe a, a personal note, having been an inspiration for so many listeners in our audience, We'd love to flip it around. Who inspires you and why? Oh, I'm inspired by so many people. You know, for example, the players on the U.S. Women's National Soccer League. I'm inspired by them because of all the work they've done to cast the spotlight on the problem of unequal pay and how they leveraged their stature and their success in order to level the playing field in terms of their salaries. So I find that really inspiring, um, motivating. I love listening to them talk about their journey. Um, I have scientific heroes, um, starting with my graduate advisor, um, who unfortunately passed away back in 2007. But he taught me a lot about you know, starting new projects and, and following your passion and taking risks and thinking outside the box. Um, and that was left an indelible mark upon me for the entire rest of my career. Uh, He also was the person who gave me a shot at being an organic chemist. So he opened that door for me when I wasn't sure I would find an open door. And so I owe him a lot for that. And unfortunately, I can't pay it back to him now since he's no longer with us, but I can pay it forward, which I try to do. And then I have my science heroes who are, you know, with us in the present day. Um, And two that really come to mind are the two, you know, Nobel laureates, of recent years in chemistry, whom I know well, uh, Francis Arnold and Jennifer Doudna. And when Francis won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, I went crazy. I was so excited. We hadn't had a woman recipient in so long. And she was such a no-brainer. She's so brilliant and has had such an impact. So it was really cool when she won the, the Nobel Prize. And then a few years later, Jennifer Doudna won the prize. And these two people have been my heroes for so long that to see them recognized like that for me was amazing. Um, and at the time I was like, I can't think of anything better than this, but then last Wednesday I did find something better. <laughs> so, or at least as good. And the very cool thing is that Jennifer's Nobel prize came to her during COVID. So they didn't hold the usual festivities in Stockholm that year, but they're having them this year. And so she will be there. So all the laureates that didn't get their Stockholm trip are going to be on this round. And so she'll be there with me at the same time and you know we'll get to hang out. Well, we hope to have you all back for a Nobel round table at some point. It would be fun to host the three of you and uh, a, a table of heroes it will be for sure. Any closing thoughts that you'd love to share with our audience and how can our listeners learn more about your work? 
Well, um, first of all, any listeners, I would thank you for taking the time to hear my stories. You can certainly learn more about my work either by following me on Twitter. I, you know, I'm pretty good at tweeting out all of our publications as they hit the presses, as well as tweeting science from other laboratories that I find interesting and compelling and celebrating the successes of scientists and chemists, you know, across the world. So Twitter is probably a good place to start. And then if you really want to dig into the details, come visit our website. It's easy to find. Um, just Google my name and all of our publications are listed there. So you can even read the science firsthand if you so choose. Thanks again. And so very grateful for all the evangelism you've done for translational scientists and the next generation coming behind has a, a mentor and a North Star to follow and grateful for your guidance in that journey. What a fantastic episode. We're very grateful for your time and look forward to having you back on the show soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.